So you're on TikTok, right, Reed? On it right now, currently, always. So I'm sure you've heard about all the crazes that are going around on TikTok. Like uh, I heard just recently that there's a challenge now for kids to dump a can of beans on either your porch. Oh, great. Another one about stealing out of schools. Have you heard about that one? Yeah, I saw the soap dispensers, I think, or something. And then, of course, there's the ever-present milk crate challenge videos. We've banned those now. TikTok has banned those now. They cite public safety. I like to say Jackass only worked because like, we didn't have a distribution model for videos when I was younger. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 243. On the other side of the microphone, that is Chris Boyer. I am Reed Smith. Hey, Reed. I'm just uh, trying to Google here to find out where I can return all these milk crates that I picked up because apparently I can't do those videos anymore yeah where are all the milk crates coming from like I, is that where would you even i don't even know where i would go get a milk crate like if somebody was like i need a milk crate immediately no idea where i'd go anyway welcome to touchpoint uh we appreciate you tuning in for episode number 243 thanks to be a great show just want to give a quick plug uh for the podcast itself and the network which is also called touchpoint you can learn a little about both over at touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is the website that houses this episode you're listening to, the show you're listening to, and about 20 or so other shows, show hosts, topics, all that kind of fun stuff that you can dig around and check out. So go check that uh, when you have time. Also, when you're there, you'll notice up in the top navigation, it says TPS report. If you click on that, give us your name and your email address. We will do one and one thing only with that, which is send you an email on Monday morning, five articles to start your week. That's it. Five articles each Monday morning. It's all there is to it. And I would love for you to certainly rate, review, subscribe, and all that kind of fun stuff, but give you a second to go check out the website. And we'll, uh, we'll take a brief pause here and then be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
Reed, have you heard the term generational bias? Yes, I have. I would assume these are bias uh, based on uh, how old you are. Yeah, I think that a lot of times people people associate that term generational bias against the age that you are or the generations like, you know, baby boomers versus Gen Xers versus millennials versus Gen Z. But, you know, generational bias is an ongoing issue in our industry. Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, probably because of just the expectations, you mean? Yeah. I mean, and it really impacts how we, there a lot of things that we do in our health systems, in the health systems that we work with. You know, when we think about generational bias as a, a thing, we wanted to talk about that today because, first of all, we have a really great interview later on in the podcast with Megan Johnson, who's an expert on generational differences and generational marketing. So today, let's dive in a little bit to generational bias and talk about how it applies and even how technology is either helping or hurting it within our organization. Let's do it. And uh, the first article that we're going to turn to is actually from uh, Lighthouse. It's a uh, blog about leadership and management advice, and they've got a a post around essential tips for managing generational differences in the workplace. This is probably one of the better definitions of generational bias. So let's start off with that. They define it as a generational bias or a generational tension means you believe that everyone of a certain generation is either inferior to your generation or displays a certain negative behavior. What if they do? What if all the other generations are wrong? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I feel kind of bad because we do make uh, millennial comments quite often. And they do call that out. You know, these innocent jokes about millennials uh, and things like that, or that they say in here that, um, you know, about millennials being lazy, for example, Gen X uh, being bitter uh, or being left out. Baby boomers are the ones that, you know, kind of screwed everything up, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, they say can, you know, uh, negatively hurt, you know, relationships. I mean, I, I think that's maybe overstated a hair, but the point being is that, you know, words hurt. Yeah. And stereotypes and, 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 you know, ways that we kind of look at these generations hurt. The article does go on to say that each generation does have differences, but some of those perceived differences may be stereotyping more than a constructive view of that generation. And, you know, it encourages you. This is obviously, this is a leadership and management blog. They kind of caution to say, think about how you treat every one of your employees and your coworkers and consider if you're projecting a generational expectation or if you're truly judging them as an individual. I'm glad they gave us an out to still judge people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. They talk about you know where there's really two places this is impacting the workforce, and so there's the HR recruitment workplace culture kind of piece, and then communications and marketing, and they say namely the persona development piece. And immediately my mind went to like you know some sort of persona development of millennials, where it's got like the trendy picture and like they're wearing the like lumberjack, yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know the toboggan or whatever, but. Um, <laughs> And, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think you, you do have to be careful, uh, maybe with some of the persona development pieces, because the stereotypes do tend to come out. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they sure do. And we even talked about this a couple episodes ago when we were talking about personalization. Remember, we were talking about superficial personalization, where you could actually apply a generational bias into your personalization strategy and say women between you know these certain ages are childbearing and they have you know they'll respond to these types of messages. So this this ha- does have a fundamental impact. So let's dive into the two different areas. That we they outlined in this uh, this previous article. HR recruiting workplace is first, and then we'll we'll jump into the communications marketing part of that. Secondary, I thought what was interesting about HR and recruiting is that this is actually an area where there's a lot of discussion today around generational bias, particularly around using AI and in people analytics. I think that's interesting, you know, because is your inherent bias built into the AI component? Haven't we talked about that? Yeah, we've talked about that before. We, you know, I think this, this is a very tricky situation, right? When you think about this, because there is inherent data bias, but then there is also bias as an article that we found that came from a person who actually does consulting. He, he wrote a, an opinion piece on this. Josh Burson is his name. That's called People Analytics and AI in the Workplace, Four Dimensions of Trust. And he dives into it. He indicates that there are both data and analytic issues, as well as just general issues that kind of apply in this whole space of HR recruiting and workplace culture. Uh, you know, he talks in here, calls out the idea that, that companies are using surveys and feedback tools, obviously, to get opinions from employees. And I, that's nothing really new, but we are using tools to monitor emails, our, all of our network communications pieces, you know, capturing that data, location, mobility. Now, all of a sudden, we have information around people's you know, well-being or fitness or health levels or perceived you know, health levels and, and things like that, which is a lot different than we used to have, I guess. Absolutely. And we've heard a lot recently about using also social media data to help flesh out your people analytics platform. And now you're getting into whole other places. And that comes up in recruiting, that recruiters are sometimes looking at social media accounts of potential applicants for jobs. And then we're also applying them to sort of your HR record, so to speak. You know, in the early days, we didn't have that much data, but now we're in the place now where we have captured a lot of data about people. And this becomes a bit of a challenge when you th- think about how do we use it uh, applicably in our workplace. Can you still do that? I know there was a whole industry that kind of popped up around the social media component because of the protected categories and things like that. Like you can't go look at someone's Facebook page because you might see their marital status or where they go to church or something, you know, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is that still a thing? You can still use that data, but it's how you use that data, I think, is, becomes the important part of this. And that's why there's this whole upsurgence of AI in this space to help HR professionals sort out all of the data sources that there are and how to manage that. Whew. So that's a lot, it feels like. Yeah, I think the idea of HR analytics or the data there has changed quite a bit, much like probably like in the marketing space, right? Mm -hmm. We have access to so much more now than we used to. That seems to be the case on the HR side. And this author indicates that this is really uh, an ethical challenge for us 
in the workforce. And he outlines those two dimensions to ethics. The first is the data and algorithm that you are using to determine if it's fair, does it accurately reflect performance, does it discriminate, etc. And second, uh, are the data systems and algorithms safe? And when that comes into protecting privacy, confidentiality, and security. So this kind of leads into these four dimensions of trust. Yeah. Let's talk about those. Well, the first one he calls out is privacy. And I, I think that's probably most people's consideration just in general when you start talking about data and things that, you know about them specifically or data elements about them. So, you know, when an employee joins your company for, you know, he talks about here, they give you the rights to collect, in most cases, give you the rights to collect a lot of data. But, uh, you know, the employers don't have the right to expose this data, share it, link it with personally identified information, et cetera. So even though you've you've opted in, if you will, you know, back to your earlier point, you know, how how is it going to be used or how is it used? And a sister to the privacy issue is security. And this is one that we've already kind of addressed. Many of the IT systems have already addressed that. But you have to think about how is your data stored? Is it protected? Can you access it? You know, do you have password policies, encryption, all of those other things? When you talk about HRIS systems nowadays, they are very much uh, have addressed that because these are IT issues that we deal with. And we, we in healthcare, we deal with it very, very securely because of the related HIPAA implications too, because in many organizations, you also have employees' health information accessible through internal systems. So the third, and in, in, uh, he calls out, and I probably, I agree, the most difficult problem around this people analytics category is the actual bias itself. So whether you're analyzing the data yourself, by buying a tool like an AI tool or something like that, that and especially if you have the AI tool. So those are just algorithms. They're systems that are in place, right? Like they don't, they can't discern necessarily. So they're, they're going to based on the data that goes in. You always talk about like bad data in, bad data out kind of a thing when we were talking about like CRMs and those types of platforms. And so this is this is similar that if there's an existing, they talk about an existing data is biased, that you know the what comes out the other end, the predictions, the recommendations, all that kind of stuff will be biased as well. And this is where generational bias really comes into play, right? In that you could have your HR system set up so that you have to, as they indicate here, you have to train your analytic systems accordingly. And many of the AI systems that are in place right now are looking at just that to ensure that when you're out recruiting for new hires, when you're dealing with HR issues, et cetera, that that generational bias and other biases, including ones that we've talked about regarding diversity and equity, et cetera, are not prevalent in your workspace. The fourth dimension of trust, he indicates it's perhaps the most important, is uh, what's your intent in capturing the data? The big question to ask is this, why are you implementing this analytics platform or AI tool? How is it going to help? How is it being used? Is it being used for monitoring? Is it being used for performance assessment? Is it being used for efficiency's sake? The, uh, again, all of these issues, these four issues that we outlined here, Reid, are very, very uh, challenging. And when you go into it, there's a lot of detail involved. But uh, he says these are the four dimensions of trust that you need to look at to ensure that you're not building bias systems. Whew. Okay. Well, hey, everybody listening, just make sure you do that stuff. 
<laughs> well, click through the article for sure. When we come back from the break, read, why don't we jump into the other half of the equation, which is how uh, generational bias might be filtering its way into the way we're marketing and communicating with individuals. But we'll do that right after this brief pause. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, so before the break, we talked a lot about the initial way that bias is impacting our workforce, which is the HR recruiting workplace culture piece. Now we're going to talk about how this might be slipping uh, I'm skeptical here, but I'll reserve a bit. No. In the communications and marketing side of the equation. There's an interesting article from the Harvard Business Review called Your Messaging to Older Audiences Outdated. And it's it's very fascinating. Again, I encourage you to click through and, and take a look and read the article a little bit deeper because they cite a lot of research that's around this. But let's hit some of the high points here, Reed. Given the rapidly aging population, the article starts. It says effective messaging to older people holds national importance for public health as well as marketing, particularly in this. Well, it's not post pandemic, right? In this, in this, in the COVID days, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to state that older people make up an incredibly diverse demographic that varies now in terms of physical and cognitive abilities. You know, it's funny, I've had this conversation here recently as it relates to web, right? You know, like a web redesign project or whatever. So you're talking about content for senior adults and like the senior service line, if you will. What do you call it? Hmm. Right? Is it is it senior care? Uh, obviously, in a clinical standpoint, it's like geriatric medicine or something, which is a terrible Probably the label something. I don't know. But you know, you start thinking about, well, okay, but when you're if you in in really quite honestly, what like where is that? Is it fifty-five plus? Is it sixty? Is it (laughs) sixty-five? Like what you know, so it's just really funny to think about, well, first off, what what is an older audience? Yeah, and then let alone how do you categorize that? I guess you have three parts of your website, one part for children. Um, which is really, I guess, parents of the children, and then one part for you know average adults, and then one for older adults. Now, I guess that it doesn't hold up. This is an interesting challenge. It really is something kind of interesting because let's just say you have a program, right? Like an affinity-based program, which a lot of folks do. You know, the silver sneakers or something like that for your fifty-five plus or you know whatever that service line is. That's fine if people know to look for that. So that's where the kind of the quandary comes in here is like, okay, well, somebody lands here on your website and they want to see what are the services that are relevant to me? What are they going to search for? And I think this article kind of addresses that because, in fact, this older generation or geriatric, I, I don't know what we're calling it, right? The senior generation. One of the most pressing concerns, they say, in the early days of the pandemic was how to best communicate to this audience, because quite frankly, a lot of those audiences were identified as high risk in the public health sector. So many attempts at the early stages of the pandemic were stereotyped depictions of older people as frail, lonely, 
even incompetent. Mm. Yeah, and in doing so, these messages from advertisers, public health officials, even hospitals and policymakers failed to resonate with large swaths of the targeted population. Well, imagine that. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting, right? Because in the call out here, you know, today's older generations are less lonely and happier than their younger counterparts. Why is that? You know, as a result, it says market segmentation based on chronological age is becoming increasingly difficult, if not futile. I think we used to think about the older generations. I'm going to make some assumptions here um, of being isolated, home, shut ins, growing up in the church. That was always something we talked about was, you know, helping some of the, you know, like the widows or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Which I think is a great ministry, right? Like, you know, hey, you know, let's let's go help them. We'll mow their grass and you know spend some time with you know provide you know companionship and some spend some time there and help you know run some errands, go pick up stuff from the pharmacy for you. Know, I don't think that's gone away necessarily, but I'm wondering if because it, it talks about the older generation is less light, less lonely, uh, and happier. Um, maybe it's because we're working too much. Moreover, they go on to say, in addition to the physical health, subjective age influences decisions and preferences, and how older generation, and again, I'm, I'm trying not to be biased in saying this, but how they view their futures are different, and that can significantly shape the way we communicate with them. I think so. And I think if you look at, again, we're talking about you know the messaging's outdated, right? Because we've done it based on these. Because I remember when, when I took my first job at the hospital in Texas as a marketing director in 2003, uh, it was a 55 plus program, mm-hmm. right? Like that was the senior like affinity program people would join. Yeah, yeah. You know, do some mall walking, blood pressure tests, things like that, you know, important stuff. And that was all fine. But I think about that now and I think about, okay, people are having children, you know, after they're 40, for example. Well, I mean, at 55, that kid is like 13. <laughs> you know, you're not in the mindset of like, I'm nearing retirement. Like you're running to soccer games and taking people here and setting the, you know, like you're still kind of it. And we've talked about this for years where it's like, oh, 70s, the new 80 and 60s, the new, you know, uh, 70. And you start kind of doing that math kind of thing and all the generations shift. I think that's why, you know, that mindset of the rest of the world is talking to these folks in a different way and we just haven't kept up maybe. I think that's absolutely true. And it's like almost generationally, it's not age anymore that makes a difference. There are other factors that are kind of contributing to that. We talked about this before about uh, Generation P for the pandemic generation. Like that's a huge milestone. We have people in the interview later, we talk about it. We have people of all different ages now that have embraced virtual platforms for their health and for communications. It's not just, you know, young people using the internet anymore as it's been the bias, right? This article, uh, Reed, they come out with recommendations that they suggest public health officials, advertisers, policymakers, and health systems can use and embrace to reach some of these older populations. Let's hit on those really quick. So they talk about the, you know, to, to initially focus on emotionally meaningful material, we probably should do this anyway. I'm guessing that's what we're talking about. Storytelling be so important. 
right? Is, is having that connection. So, you know, again, if it's uh, emotionally meaningful, it's going to appeal, I would say really to most folks, but certainly the older, um, you know, as people get older, the older population and will quite honestly be better remembered. Secondly, they say prioritize on the positive. Whereas younger people's attentions are often captured by negative information, older people focus on positive information. And this is a shift, right, of framing emotional content in positive rather than negative ways. And I would say that maybe it's not just older people versus younger people. I think in general, we can all benefit from prioritizing the positive, don't you think? I think so. It's just less people will click on the headlines, right? So you got to stick with the clickbait stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then finally, uh, identify with the elderly uh, and and ditch the stereotypes. So they talk about the fact that many elderly audiences report feeling subjectively younger. So what we talked about a little while ago that, you know, 60 is the new 50 or whatever. They say that 70-year-olds report feeling as much as 15 to 20% younger then their chronological age. I don't know how you measure that. Like that's just seems like a weird stat. But in any case, the point being is to ditch those stereotypes, right? Get away from that and start thinking about that maybe people, you know, that are 55 are in a time in life that's a little bit different than 55-year-olds were. 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And again, this leads back to the topic that we're talking about today, which is generational bias and makes for a nice segue to the interview. I mentioned that I interviewed recently Megan Johnson, who is a generational expert, speaker, and author. She actually presented at a healthcare internet conference a few years ago, and that's where I met her. She and I had a good conversation about generational bias and ways that she works with organizations and individuals to help them overcome some of the biases they have. So let's take a break now, listen to the interview, and then we'll come back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to be talking with someone that I met I don't know, Megan, we were thinking about this a a number of years ago at one of our conferences. You were a a speaker at one of the healthcare internet conferences that we were at a number of years ago. But nonetheless, it is Megan Johnson. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's so much fun to be here. And I totally remember that conference. But of course, now I can't remember what year. The last year, COVID year, like completely wiped my brain. Yeah, I think time is just is a whole construct now after this last, you know, 18 months. Exactly. You could have told me we met five days ago or five years ago. I'm like, I'd say, yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just call it the before times, right? That's kind of a a good way to say that. Megan, I'm excited to talk to you today about the topic at hand. But before we do that, I would love for you to share your background and your expertise with our audience. I never get tired of talking about myself, Chris. Thank you. (laughs) I speak about generations, the different generations we work with, we live with. And I became interested in the generational topic. After I graduated from Arizona State University with a degree in marketing, I started out in the corporate world and I experienced a lot of challenges I hadn't I hadn't predicted. And part of it was because what had made me successful working part-time jobs, you know, the typical part-time jobs many of us had during college, those skills didn't seem to transfer. 
And also my bosses who were quite a bit older than, than I was, they didn't seem to understand what really motivated me in the workplace. And I don't think it was anybody's fault on one side or the other. It was just a generational miscommunication. So at the same time, and now everyone's going to figure out how old I am when I say this, at the same time, people were talking about uh, how hard it was to work with Generation X, because that's my generation. And this is the 90s. And everyone's like, oh, those 20-somethings, those Gen Xers, they're so tough to work with. And I thought, we're not that hard to work with. You know, I think you guys are hard to work with. So... (laughs) In 1997, I started talking about how to work with Generation X. And as uh, more generations joined the workforce and baby boomers continued to stay in the workforce, I began to speak about how to work across generational lines. How do we create successful multi-generational relationships? Yeah, I think that's very important. And Megan, don't feel uh, sad about being a part of Generation X. I am too, proudly. (laughs) Uh, I understand that. I understand that. But I heard that actually this is a unique time where the most number of generations are working together in the workforce. Yes, I've heard that. I've said that. You really, you could have five. If you if you went from one end to the other, you could have five generations in the workforce. And I like to ask audiences, maybe you don't have five generations in your workplace, but lots of people have five generations in their in their personal life, in their homes, you know, in some of us, some of them are all living in one house. Right, absolutely. And I know that there are certain things about generations, when we talk about it professionally or even personally, we might have our own preconceived notions as to what the generations are. And that's what I remember from the the session that you presented at, at that conference many years ago. You actually show that there is this concept of what I guess we're calling generational bias. Many of us believe that people from a different generation are lacking certain strengths that our generation has. And you might remember this from my presentation. I, I have a fun exercise where I ask the audience to tell me descriptors of the different generations. And I make a point of bringing up a cover from Life Magazine 1968, which talks about the generation gap. And I make the point saying, hey, you know what? We're not saying anything new. In fact, what you're saying about Generation Z today is what the what people said about baby boomers, you know, back in the 60s. And we said the same thing about Generation X in the 90s. This generational bias, it is a challenge when we're working in in a professional sense, as I said. For hospitals and health systems, there's there's a lot of incidences of generational bias that I have found. What do you see on a professional level around generational biases? How does that impact the workforce? So I would say generational bias is, and I, I'll be upfront, I can be guilty of this, is when, especially when dealing with someone from the older generation, for me, baby boomers, sometimes we make the assumption that their learning stopped. We think, well, they're 15, 20 years older than I am, so they really aren't interested in learning anything new. That's so far from the truth. And I'm just being very upfront. Sometimes I'm guilty of that assumption when dealing with my own dad, who is a baby boomer. He is such He's such a renaissance man. It's, it's a horrible assumption to make. But sometimes we just think... Gosh, you know, they've already learned all they need to learn. They're not interested in learning anything new. But boy, COVID taught us that wasn't true. They were working virtually like many of us, and they were Zooming like a lot of us. So when we make that assumption that that generational bias, that gosh, the older generation isn't interested in learning anything new, especially in the professional setting, what that does is really just furthers 
I call it retiring on the job. They kind of disengage. If we're not continually offering them learning opportunities, it becomes easier for them to become disengaged. It's like, you know, hey, I may be closer to retirement than that 20-something or 30-something, but that doesn't mean that I'm not interested in what we're doing, that I'm not interested in learning something new and being a, a vital part of the team. From my own personal experience, I feel that is true, right? Is that people of all generations, they always want to learn and grow more in the workforce, even the younger generations. I think where maybe the differences are in the style of how they learn or where they seek out their training, because I know that many of the younger generations, and now maybe this is my generational bias coming through, but they have grown very adept at being able to use the internet to seek out information. They almost have become their own self-starters in their learning because they're, they're interested, they go research it, they have all the tools available to them. Whereas people in my generation and others above, they may have a different learning style. Is that true? Definitely different learning styles. But I think, again, here's another little generational bias. We make the assumption that younger people only want to learn in the digital space or only want to learn online. We forget that, you know what? We're all human beings. That human connection is extremely important. We, we make a mistake when we assume that younger people will figure it out for themselves because they have the information online, that that human interaction, that human touch. And I, all, I realize post-COVID interacting face-to-face is a little bit different, but that, that is still an important part of training. And I have to remind myself of that when I have a, a younger person that works for me who handles a lot of my social media, I have to remember that it's still my job to step in and say, all right, let's talk about some of the projects you're working on. Let's talk about what the next step is rather than just assuming, well, she's, you know, she's great at social media, so she can figure it all out. You know, she can, you know, she knows what to do. That human interaction, that connection still remains important. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that is something that over the last 18 months, we've we've kind of been lacking. We haven't had that opportunity. And I think that all of us, regardless of where we're at in our generations, we kind of desire that. We crave that. We do. Especially if you, I mean, just even before the pandemic, I always have worked from home and you get used to just being by yourself. Your um, socializing skill, your your people skills, they start to get a little rusty. You forget what it's like to have a conversation, a normal conversation. Absolutely. Like face to face, right? Right. Right. (laughs) Where you don't have to get off the mute button all the time. Exactly. Right? Those right. sorts of things. I've been reading a lot of articles lately about there are a great number of people in the workforce right now that have been hired and have worked at organizations and are actually leaving organizations without meeting people because of us being isolated. So tell us a little bit about how um, generational, you know, how the generational thinking and and maybe even generational bias falls into the sort of the hiring and recruiting process. When it comes to the different generations, again, it's a multi-generational group is always going to be a, a more well-rounded group, or I think I, I think a stronger, more successful group than if you just have a group of one generation. So you have a younger generations, you have millennials and Gen Z, which we now are like the two of the younger generations. It's funny, I have some of my groups, they just assume anybody under 30 is a millennial. And actually millennials, the oldest uh, millennials, 40, 40 years old. I mean, so millennials are not the newbie to the workforce anymore. So we've, then you've got Generation Z. Generation Z is, is not a big part of the workforce right now um, because the oldest one is 23, but they are going to be a really big part, portion 
of the workforce, and especially in healthcare, as older physicians and healthcare workers begin to retire, move on, the two younger generations are the ones that are really going to take over the vacancies that they leave. The difference maybe though, when it comes to recruiting is that some of the, what they're looking for in a workplace is a little bit different. So I mentioned baby boomers. We make this assumption that baby boomers are not interested in um, furthering their education. And that's an incorrect generational bias. What we're seeing with younger people is that the mission is a real vital part of why they choose where they want to work. So what's the purpose? What's the mission? And in healthcare, which I mean, healthcare is so, they have so many opportunities to Mm -hmm. showcase the mission that they represent. But healthcare organizations are really going to have to learn to market that mission, right? You just can't assume, well, you know, you go into healthcare because, you know, you're helping people. They really have to present that mission in all their marketing when they're looking at recruiting younger people. What is it when I, when I come to work for you, either on site or virtually, how am I making a difference? And it's that making a difference that making that a priority when you're recruiting younger people. And that has to be really out there front and center. Also, when you look at younger people, we're looking at also flexibility. And I know that pre-COVID, the biggest complaint I heard from millennials was that my employer will, they won't let me work from home or they won't let me work remotely. And always the big excuse was, well, because the job you do, we don't have the technology to support you working out of the office. So we learned obviously COVID that many jobs could be done in different locations and we do have the technology to support it. But we also learned that there are some jobs that have to be done on site and flexibility doesn't always have to mean just working remotely. Flexibility also is, can be uh, like same day pay for some hourly employees. Now I think a, a baby boomer that wouldn't even occur to them because being paid every two weeks or however your pay system is set up, that's pretty standard operating procedures for them. However, someone from a Generation Z, same-day pay is pretty much ties into how they have grown up. I mean, we Generation Z and many millennials have grown up with being able to be paid immediately in their personal life, free of PayPal, Venmo, also like on-demand staffing. Mm -hmm. That resonates really well with the younger generation because it can give them some flexibility on choosing when and where to work. Whereas a baby boomer, they may want a more predictable schedule. You know, as you talk about, you know, younger generations and older generations alike, I think that, again, the pandemic has kind of showed us that there's a whole new world, right? A working world. And so I'm wondering if that flexibility that the younger generation is is so wanting, and even as you mentioned, right, that purpose, that meaningful purpose that they're looking for in their jobs, is that bleeding through to other generations? Because I myself look at those now and say, oh, these are nice to haves as well. I want these too. Exactly. And that's what's so, it's what, what is so great about younger generations because what younger generations do is they take something I call like a seed, a nugget of of a thought or an idea, and they really bring it into the cultural focus. And they just bring it into the cultural focus faster than if it had just preceded its sort of natural growth cycles. Even just if we take something like the internet, I mean, the internet was not invented by younger people. The internet was invented by the older generations, but it's because the younger people really latched onto this idea of, of being able to communicate in the online space, they really brought it into the cultural focus faster. Even like social media, social media, they really uh, was invented by, you know, we think about social media, Facebook, the big elephant in the room. I mean, that was invented by an older millennial. And but it was because younger people really latched onto it and brought it into the cultural eye. 
we we all adapted to it quicker. So that you you bring up a really good point, Chris, because it's not that's another generational bias. Just because the younger generation likes it doesn't mean that the older generation doesn't adapt to it. They do. And as we see, once the older generation adapts to it, the younger generation is like, well, forget this. We got to right. move on. <laughs> well, but there are some meaningful changes, right? I yes. think that I think that that's part of our bias, right? Is that yes. the, the workforce is established by the people that have been there the longest, the workplace culture, right? But I, I think that I, I actually learned a lot. I actually learned how to be a better manager of people by listening and understanding what the different generations that I supported. And I've managed people older and younger than me, and they all have great ideas. I almost like to think of the younger generations just have the audacity to do things differently, right? And challenge the norm. <laughs> they do. Because sometimes I think the younger generation, they don't they don't know the rules that went into place this is the reason we do it this way, because we have these set of rules that were put into place in 1972. Well, they weren't there in 1972. They don't know these rules. And you know what? Maybe those rules don't make any more sense. And so whenever I, when I'm talking to groups and they say, you know, I've got this younger person, they've been here for two weeks, you know, they just got their nursing degree and now they want to, you know, they want to move this, change this, flip this. And they don't understand this. This is a hospital. It's like turning the Titanic. You just can't change everything. I, I always say, you know, rather than just saying no to a younger person and their new ideas, ask yourself internally, ask yourself, hey, whatever they're suggesting, does it negatively impact cost, quality, safety, or service? Whatever they want to do, does it negatively impact any of those four areas? And if the answer is no, that's a real, that's a real clear sign to say, all right, let's try your idea. I mean, because worst case scenario, nothing changes. Best case scenario is you learn a different approach. You learn a better way to serve customers, clients, patients. You find a better way to get your job done. And the younger person who brought that idea to the table has ownership. They've made their mark. They've made an emotional connection. When people complain about the, the younger generation not being engaged in the work, they're not engaged in the work. It's the, the, they're engaged in changing it. So let, give them a platform that they can challenge their old ways of doing things. You know, and I realize, especially in healthcare, you have so many rules, regulations, policies, procedures you have to adhere to, but there has to be room to allow them to challenge the old ways of doing things. And the four steps I gave you is kind of like an easy, an easy jumping off point. Would it negatively impact any of those four areas? And let's say it does. Let's say it negatively impacts cost. That You can easily go back and say, all right, your idea is a good one, but it negatively impacts this cost. What can we do to fix that? Have them be part of the solutioning, right? Exactly. Not just dismiss it outright. Uh, you know, I almost want to take your your four point framework, right, and and almost say, well, can it also positively impact, right? Give a positive spin to it too, because in my mind, I think that's always an opportunity for change. Right. But you know, that's also I think a generational bias. At least I see that a lot in our industry. Th- there's this this kind of assumption that. New thinking and new innovation comes from younger people, younger generations. Is that that's not necessarily true, though, right? Oh no, it's not true at all. That only the good ideas come from younger people. No, that but that's a really good point. That's a very good point that you've made. Um, as I said, I have several uh, people from the baby boomer generation who are mentors, including my dad, who also is uh, in this industry. He recently is retired, sort of, just like a baby boomer, sort of retired, not sort of retired. I mean, the older generation really—they do have—they do have 
wonderful ideas. And that's a good example of bias. Though sometimes I think the older generation, because they're more accustomed to the traditional hierarchy of an organization, you know, there's the corporate ladder, there's the, the authority, they may wait to be asked before just jumping right in. It's not just the baby boomer's job to bestow all their knowledge on you. It is really also the younger generations. And when I say younger, I mean everybody else's responsibility really kind of duty to ask the baby boomers about what their thoughts are on a a particular topic or their ideas on how to solve a problem. I know that you told me you had a, you have a degree in marketing and many of our listeners are in marketing. So we do need to turn our attention to generational bias. When we think about marketing, I know that we do it all the time. Right. And in healthcare, it's, it's often said, right. That what we want to do is we want to target people between these age ranges because they're the highest utilization of our services or that sort of thing. What do you, what's your perspective about generational bias as it impacts, let's say persona development or, or targeting? Yeah, I, when I think about marketing, I think sometimes we get so involved with whatever is the latest and greatest when it comes to marketing. And we think, well, if the younger generation is doing it, then this is what we have to focus on. And I remember, uh, again, now it was the, a handful of years ago, I was speaking to a group and it was just when apps were becoming popular. And I remember talking to one of my clients and they were in advertising. He said, ugh, these apps. He says, now all my clients want an app. Everybody wants an app. He says, but you know, not everybody needs an app. This generational bias is, well, if the young people are using apps, then we need to have an app. You know, again, this was a long time ago. So I, I think sometimes we think, well, if the younger person is using it, and this is the space they're in, then this is where we have to be. When sometimes it's got to go back to, hey, you know what? Maybe what you've been doing for marketing is still the old school way, like you're sending out a piece of postal mail. Or I think about one of the companies I use as an example in my program, Tuft & Needle. They're a, they're a mattress company. They use billboard advertising. So I think sometimes we, we think, well, if this is the space that younger people are in and this is where we want to be, we throw everything we've done out the window and we jump into this space where maybe that space is not really going to showcase you what you offer and it, or the people in that space are not who you really are, are looking for, or there's so much noise in that space that you're not going to stand out. You know, uh, a couple of episodes ago, Reed and I talked about uh, what, what we called surface level personalization, mm-hmm. where we're just making these assumptions based on customers based on like their ages and, you know, even their genders. And I think that we do surface level bias based on generational thinking too. Yes. Oh, definitely. I hear now that, um, you know, people are starting to kind of move away from uh, defining a generation by their ages and more about incidences that happen in their lives. I guess that's part of the definition of a generation. But where do you see, like, as we move forward and we see we're in a multi-generational workplace now, um, how do you see our thinking around generations evolving? Well, I hope it continues to evolve. And I always bring this up. Uh, in my presentations is that I think people they're they say, well, you know, when you start talking about generations, you're stereotyping people, you're putting them in boxes. And, uh, and especially now it's so important that, that we are an inclusive society, not an exclusive one, you know, not, we don't want to exclude people. We want to be inclusive. And I think people think, well, when do, once you say generations do this or generations do that, we're being, ex- we're, we're not being inclusive, but I do point out, and you were talking about events that define a generation. 
I actually call those generational signposts. So when I, I say to audiences, we're not, I'm not trying to stereotype. It's just that every generation has generational signposts. How events, technology, and the economy shape various groups of people. Because clusters of people born during a certain time frame have experienced similar situations and can be differentiated from other generations. So yes, we may have all experienced that situation. So for example, we've been talking a lot about the anniversary of 9-11. You know, I was in my early 30s. I had that. That was a generational signpost for me. It was a much different generational signpost for me than it was for a millennial who was maybe, you know, eight or nine at the time. They're going to walk away from that generational signpost with a different set, with a different set of, of beliefs or understandings or reaction to that, that, that event. And that's, that's really, I think, when we talk about generations, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at, hey, I've had this generational signpost that has, I have a very emotional connection to it. And now I'm dealing with someone from a different generation whose emotional connection to it is different than mine, or maybe they don't even have an emotional connection to it at all. They don't like you have a Gen Z or who you start talking about 9-11. They're like, I have no idea really what you're talking about. It's just something in the history books. And they're not even holding the book. They're reading it on a tablet. <laughs> I've heard some people say, it was last year, they were calling it now, we're now in a new, we have a new generational milestone, which is the, the pandemic. Generation P is what they're calling it, right? <laughs> but, but that transcends everyone. And so in that particular case, it, it's going to have a meaningful impact to us. M- Megan, this has been a really interesting conversation. I say we could talk about this forever. This is really fascinating. You have a lot of online resources for Do you want to share with people how they can find out more about you online? Yes, of course. They can find me online. They can do the old-fashioned way and go to the website. Gosh, the days when we'd go to a website. So you can go to my website. It's Megan Johnson. That's M-E-A-G-A-N Johnson. MeganJohnson.com. You can also find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. And as I did mention, I do have a video series. It's about young entrepreneurs. It's called Profits versus Pitfalls. Young Entrepreneurs, what we need to learn and know about the younger generation, what they can teach us about how to take chances and uh, learn a little bit more about ourselves. So uh, there are about 30-minute segments, and I interview entrepreneurs who are under 40 and just talk about their journey what they learned, and then what we need to know so that we can be more successful in our own businesses working across generational lines. Well, that's really fascinating stuff. And we're going to link to all of that in the show notes. So those people listening in, feel free to look through in the show notes and click on through. Megan, this has been a great conversation. It's been as interesting and as relevant as it was however many years ago when we, uh, <laughs> when we first met. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. I so appreciate it, Chris. Special thanks to Megan for coming on the show. Uh, I was actually, I believe, there at that conference as well. I want to think, and I could be way off base here, but it seems like it was HCIC that was out in Scottsdale. Yeah. If I remember right, which uh, for those keeping score at home, uh, was the year that we did this show with Lee AC, Ed Bennett, and yourself outside uh, over leaf blowers. That were right. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Exactly. But anyway, that's neither here nor there or terribly important at this point, but really appreciate her expertise and for coming on the show. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health and the TPS report that you will find there. If you sign up, we mentioned earlier, you get an email each Monday morning with five articles to search your week, all of which is true. 
you will see some links at the bottom of that email to industry conferences, the aforementioned HCIC, ShishMed, the uh, Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit, and all that kind of stuff that's coming up. You'll see links to those. You can click through, learn more, register, all that kind of fun stuff. So uh, sign up if you will. Uh, all right, let's do a couple of recommendations and we'll uh, close out the show. Okay, Reed, I'll start. I'm going to recommend something that you can't really buy, but recently my wife and I had a chance to do a getaway. We kind of unplugged and went to the North Shore of Lake Superior to go for a hiking weekend and go out and see the fall foliage. And I'm telling you, it was just incredible. There was something about just getting out without having your phone around. Uh, of course, pulling it out occasionally to take photos of the of the leaves and stuff, but really just doing a hike and just being in in nature and seeing nature and all of its transformative beauty as we as we enter into the fall and to the autumn time frame. It was just really incredible. And I will say that even at one point in time, we hiked dangerously close to the border of Canada, so much so that our phone uh, and let us know that we are now hitting Canadian cell phone towers, and it. Uh, it, it warned us that we're now getting into roaming charges. So, But the, it apologized to that, right? It, it was very uh, <laughs> it was very polite about it. But no, so that's my recommendation. If you can, it's, it's the season, right? It's fall. Get out. Go enjoy the changing leaves. It's always my favorite time of the year. And, and I really found it to be very uplifting. So there you go. Mm-hmm. All right. I am going to recommend a uh, documentary. It's on Netflix. There is a, um, I guess it's, it's a series, uh, but each episode is independent of the other episodes, if that makes sense. Uh, so there's a series called Untold. It's uh, sports-related documentaries, and it's kind of the untold stories of a particular event or person or, or what have you. And the one in particular that I'm recommending, so certainly the whole series I'm sure is good. I've only ever watched this one particular episode, but it is something that happened on November the 19th, 2004. Do you mm. remember where you were November the 19th, 2004? Gosh, I'm having trouble remembering. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's been 17 years, but um, that was the night that the Indiana Pacers visited the Detroit Pistons and is the uh, Malice at the Palace. So, ah, yes. The Palace is the name of the arena that the Pistons used to play in. They've got a different arena now. And this was with Ron Artest, Jermaine O'Neal, uh, Stephen Jackson, and others, uh, Ben Wallace from the Pistons. Anyway, pushing and shoving turns into a big brawl, spills into the stands. It was a whole thing. It's really fascinating to have them interview these guys that were part of it and get their kind of perspective on the whole thing and kind of what really came of it in the fallout from it. Reggie Miller is a big piece of this is really good. I mean, it's just something that obviously I saw it. I saw it when it happened and then saw the replays of it over and over again for days on end and the suspensions and everything that came from it. But I never really heard any of the people involved uh, talk about it. I'm sure there's been other interviews, but I've just never seen them. Uh, so anyway, it's really good. It has all the original footage and kind of goes through what happened to each of these guys after the fact and what it really meant uh for the indian pacers and you know that kind of thing so anyway it's uh you know untold uh malice at the palace you know it's interesting that you recommended that again i'm not a big sports person but my wife certainly is and we actually did watch that i found it to be really fascinating 
It really is fascinating. I, you know, you, you may come away with a little different perspective on a few of the individuals that are involved, but it's uh, it's good. You know, I mean, it's a good good documentary. I like those kind of behind the scenes sports, thirty for thirty, you know, e sixty kind of things, and this this is similar. So there you go. All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for joining us again. Touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to be listening or streaming. Tell somebody else about the show. Uh, word of mouth, it still works apparently. So we would uh, certainly <laughs> appreciate the advocacy. Reach out to us on the uh, on the Twitters and uh, let us know uh, how we're doing. If there's other things we should do, be a part of, interview, topics we should cover, all that kind of good stuff. We'd love to hear from you. So. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. We'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.